After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me is my colleague, Peter Flaherty. Millie is off this week because she's not in Omaha. That's where Peter and I have been for the last week plus now. Uh, and we are we are rolling into the finals at this point. Uh, we record this on Friday morning after one of the best games of the College World Series, possibly ever. Neither Peter or I is really old enough to... Uh, to put a definitive take on that, Peter, I think, frankly, if you added the two of our ages, in fact, I know if you added the two of our ages, we still don't get to how old the College World Series is. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> we just have to, like, take a step back and acknowledge, like, well, there was a lot of history here. And, uh, you know, like, we are not we are not the best people to uh, to say definitively whether that was the best or not. What I can say is, is that was an unbelievable baseball game between LSU and and Wake Forest last night, and the result was LSU, as I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast knows, LSU won, advances to the College World Series Finals, where they will play Florida. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about today, a little bit about previewing that final series, a little bit about how we got to that final series, Uh, but it's uh, it's been a a fantastic week week of baseball here, here at the College World Series. Yeah, it's been an outstanding one. Obviously, not culminating with last night because we've still got a, a what figures to be a really good championship series on tap, but it's been a week filled with close games, competitive games, exciting moments. And coming into the College World Series, there was a lot of buzz around the amount of talent on the field that all eight teams has. And it's more than lived up to it with with each team getting performances out of their their dudes, so to speak. And and last night, as you mentioned, I I neither I nor Teddy can can speak upon um, games dating too far back, but at least in my lifetime and and certainly in my rookie year of doing this, um, I I'm going to be hard pressed to find a better game than than what transpired last night. Not only because, not only, geez, I'm having a absolute brain fart. We were we each up very late last night, but uh, not only for like how the game shaked out with the two to nothing eleven inning result, but also the the amount of talent in either dugout with Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens, most notably for LSU and then for Wake Forest, obviously Rhett Lauder and Brock Wilkin, but you can go up and down the roster. So a great college world series and it figures to end here in the next couple of days with, um, with hopefully another um, couple of really good games. Yeah. To this point in the world series, there have been 
just two games that have had a, a run margin of, of more than three runs. Uh, there was six to one TCU over Oral Roberts, but even in that game, Oral Roberts loaded the bases in the ninth inning. They didn't quite get the the tying run to the plate, obviously, but that that ninth inning was a little tense uh, for for TCU fans. I'm sure for Oral Roberts fans as well, but uh, it, it, things got tense for TCU at the end there. And then there was also LSU five to nothing over Tennessee, and that was a good game and like a tight game. It was the Tennessee did not load the bases in the ninth inning, uh, so it wasn't quite as dramatic, but. Every other game has been one, two, or three runs. And, uh, you know, last night, uh, Thursday night, LSU uh, goes goes eleven goes into the 11th scoreless with Wake Forest, and, and Tommy White hits a walk-off two-run homer. And according to ESPN Stats and Info, that was the first time in College World Series history, which, again, dates back like 76 years at this point, that a 0-0 tie was broken by a walk-off home run. So it was historic. It was uh, I, it, it was it was just a, a great game all the way around. You know, Peter mentioned the the talent in both dugouts. The the pitching matchup was everything anyone would have wanted out of Skeens and Louder, which was arguably on its own just the the best matchup you know, in terms of like all American status and draft status that the college world series had ever seen. Certainly the best that it had seen in like, I don't know, like 30. Well, I, I guess I should say that two years ago, Will Bednar and Kamar Rocker did face off. Those were both top 15 picks and Bednar's all America status was a little wonky because what he did during the NCAA tournament really pushed it over the top. So depending on when your favorite outlet did all American teams, like kind of was like, well, is Bednar an all American or not? I'm pretty sure by baseball America standards he was, but like maybe we could have pushed him up even further if we had waited until after the entire tournament. Anyway, the, the point is that two top 15 picks matched up in, in rocker and Bednar a couple years ago, but otherwise, I mean, it, that, that kind of matchup is exceedingly rare. Uh, louder and Skeens super lived up to the hype. Skeens goes eight scoreless. Louder goes seven scoreless. They both happened to set their program single season strikeout record in the same game. Uh, it was it was just a an incredible night uh, on the mound. No matter who you're talking about, like the relievers that were brought in for both teams, both pitched well. Both have you know both teams have have a really strong bullpens and. Uh, you know, it's not just that they pitched well, they, they have a fair amount of like stuff and prospectiness to them. So it was uh, that game is not going to be forgotten in Omaha history or in LSU history or even in Wake Forest history. Like they're, they might not want to reflect on it quite as much, but give it a few years. And I think they're going to, you know, look back very, you know, they will be willing to look back and, and say, like, that was a really good game. And Rhett Louder pitched. Uh, incredibly well on on that stage, and uh, so yeah, just uh, just an incredible night of baseball here in Omaha on uh, on Thursday night. Yeah, and after so, Wake was two and zero to start bracket two play. LSU was on the ropes as they were just one and one and needing to beat Wake twice to advance to the College World Series final. They did so. First on Wednesday night with a five to two win over the Deeks, and then after that it was kind of 
there was this buzz of, oh, you know, we might get louder skeins, louder skeins. And it wasn't confirmed until about two, two and a half hours before first pitch, maybe even a little sooner than that. Um, and again, it was probably the most hyped pitching matchup in recent memory, just because of both the prospect status, the stuff that they have. I mean, this is, you're talking about arguably the two best arms in college baseball going head to head in Omaha with a trip to the college world series finals on the line. Um, and then pitching matchup aside, you've got two great lineups with LSU and Wake Forest. It was, it had all of the hype and, and possibility to be one of the games of, of our lifetimes and, and to see it live up to it and, and play out how it did was, I was so lucky to be able to, to be there in attendance for it and, and watch it. And as you mentioned, Skeens and Louder were each excellent. Skeens went eight shutout innings on short rest, mind you, in which he allowed just two hits, struck out nine, walked one. The fastball was up to 101, and as he, for the entirety of his outing, he pitched, I think, in the 95 to 98, 99-mile-an-hour range. Um, and then the slider, as it has all year, Flash double plus in my mind, got a ton of swing and miss. Um, and then with louder, same same kind of deal. Seven shutout, only three hits, struck out six. His trademark changeup was hellacious on both left and right-handed hitters. Commanded all of his offerings really well, and and they each did a, a fantastic job of navigating a really, really, really strong opposing lineup. And for Wake, Nick Kurtz was a late scratch. Um I'm not sure if there was an official word on it, but the 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 word from the broadcast, and I guess Tom Walter did repeat this in the post game as well. But is that it was ribs, yeah, that he got hit in the ribs uh, now almost two weeks ago uh, in Super Regionals against Alabama, and then there was some sort of aggravation of that injury uh, during the pregame warmups. Yeah, so that was a, a definitely a bummer for Wake. I know Kurtz had been struggling to this point. I think he was just 0 for 9, but man, taking a bat like that out of your lineup is um that's it, it's really tough and he had I was down on the field for BP, took BP fine, took ground balls fine, so it must have been something in 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 further getting loose or it might have been a swing where he felt a twinge, but bottom line that stinks. Um, but luckily the, the Deeks get him back next year as he's still an underclassman. Um, but as for the game itself, again, you mentioned it lived more than lived up to the hype, both the starters were great. And then also with the relievers, Thatcher Hurd fired three shutout innings after throwing three innings of one run ball in, in the Deeks and Tigers first meeting, Michael Massey came out of the bullpen, got out of some trouble, blew a mid nineties fastball by Dylan Cruz, um, struck out five in his two and two and two thirds innings um, before giving way to Camden Manassie, whose outing was very short lived as on the first pitch, Tommy white took a hanging slider out to left field um, for a walk-off blast. So a game for the ages in all aspects. And um, I think when, when looking at the finals of LSU and Florida, um, obviously you have two, outstanding clubs but i think that with florida being able to line up its pitching lsu just i mean they're emerging from this all-out brawl and prize fight a little bit battered and bruised three games with wake forest will do that to you um so it'll be 
it, I, I think a little bit of an uphill battle on the mound for the Tigers as we get into this weekend. We'll just have to see how how that all shakes out in terms of LSU's pitching. We'll, we'll get into the, uh, the specifics of this matchup here in a second, but you know, yeah, when uh, when you know you're coming out of this having used skeins to twice to get here, obviously you're not in as optimal a position as Florida, which swept through their bracket. The Gators uh, have won three one-run games here in Omaha. They opened the thing with a 6-5 to five win against Virginia. And that game was like, it was a week ago now, but it was a really good game. Virginia was up late. Uh, Florida needed a comeback. They get it in the ninth, uh, and they uh, you know they go on to, to win 6-5 to five there. Then they beat Oral Roberts 5-4. to four. Again, just a, a really tight game. Uh, and, and then Florida takes down TCU 3-2 to two in also an insane game. Uh, you know, in that one, TCU ties the game late against Florida closer Brandon Neely. Florida gets a run in the top of the ninth on, uh, you know, just they, they kind of manufacture a run, basically, and Michael Robertson came on as a pinch runner and, and scored the go-ahead run. And then in the bottom of the ninth inning, Braden Taylor sends a missile to center field. And Michael Robertson, who, again, just entered the game as a pinch runner in the top of the ninth inning, uh, tracks down the ball at the wall and, uh, and makes a catch. Uh, in a lot of other ballparks, that ball's out. Uh, the wind was blowing in in Omaha, however, so it stayed in the ballpark. I mean, it's still very easily could have been a double, uh, but Robertson was able to uh, to track it down and hold on to the ball as he crashed into the wall uh, for a game-ending catch against you know a dude that's going to be picked in like the top fifteen picks. Uh, it was it was incredible. Like it wasn't quite what happened last night with LSU and and, and Wake Forest, but that TCU game uh, for Florida in the finals was uh, I mean it was a, a spectacular game that was very tight the whole way through and then ends on uh, one of the best defensive plays of the tournament. It might have been the defensive play of the tournament at the time. Uh, There was a potentially better one last night in that LSU game as Trey Morgan makes a great play on a squeeze play. But uh, that Michael Robertson catch was, uh, was a sensational ending to, uh, to, to that one. Yeah. An unbelievable catch. And off the bat with, with Braden Taylor, I thought, I thought it had a chance to leave. I know it was hit to the deepest part of the ballpark, but it absolutely jumped off the bat. Just the sound it made and the flight, I was like, oh, man, this has a chance. And then I watched Michael Robertson track it down and, and crash into the wall to complete the catch and and send Florida to the finals. It was it was a It's up there for defensive play of the tournament. I think it's right behind Trey Morgan's safety squeeze play right now, but it's a firm number two. And as Michael Robertson said, he was going to run through the wall if he had to make a catch, and it was evident with how he tracked it down. Um, he went full speed into the padded wall out there in right center. And I think the, the theme for Florida has just been finding a way. They haven't really had a shellacking or dominant performance of any in any of their three wins. Um, with Virginia, they trailed 5-3 in the ninth before a pair of solo home runs and a Luke Heyman uh, sack fly one of the home runs Wyatt Langford's was the farthest ball hit in Charles Schwab Stadium history with traveling 400 456 feet um, 
an early tournament. That game feels like it was like four years ago now, but yes. um, <laughs> it was a great early moment, early moment in the, in the, uh, in the college world series. And then with Oral Roberts that I think now is known as the uh, coach O'Sullivan mound visit game in which he, um, they lost track account of how many mound visits they were allotted. Uh, he went out to talk to star closer, Brandon Neely in the eighth inning. It was, but, um, that was the mound visit in which he was forced to make a pitching change. So he had to turn to freshman Cade Fisher unexpectedly. Um, Oral Roberts uh, made it extremely interesting with a Matt Hogan inside the park home run. And then in the ninth inning, they also um, they also had runners on first and third with two outs before Cade Fisher got a Jacob Godman fly out to end the game. So for Florida, it's just been... Honestly, they've found a different way to win in each of the three games, which I know that what they've done hasn't been the most impressive, but I find that extremely impressive in and of itself with just no matter the hand that they're dealt or the circumstances that they face, they time and time again on the biggest stage in college baseball, they they come out on top, whether it be excellent pitching against TCU, timely hitting, great defensive plays. Um, they, they are getting an all around effort from not only it's nine regulars, but again, Michael Robertson is not a regular in this starting lineup. He was inserted as a pinch runner for Tyler Shelnut, um, and he makes that catch. So everyone that, that gets called upon for the Gators has stepped up. And I think that's, it's another aspect that makes this team so dangerous. And I think to this point, they've relied heavily on the long ball for offensive production. They've hit seven home runs which is the most um, in the in the College World Series field at this point. And I think that it's a little, I think from an LSU perspective, a little scary or a little frightening that we haven't even seen. And again, Charles Schwab Stadium is whatever, the antithesis of a hitter-friendly ballpark. Like it's impossible to, nearly impossible to, to put up crazy lopsided offensive numbers. But um, the fact that Florida really hasn't had that offensive explosion where they're driving the ball around the yard, um, hitting line drives everywhere. Um, the fact they haven't had that yet, I think is a little bit worrisome because it just feels like a ticking time bomb with the personnel they have, obviously with Curlin, Langford, Caglione, and Rivera up at the top. Um, it feels like they're a little bit due for an outburst. Yeah. You can take the way that Florida has played here one, like a couple different ways. Like I think Florida has like, I don't want to say they've played poorly in Omaha, but they are not playing their best baseball and yet they've won anyway. So like, there's a lot to be said for teams being able to win despite not playing their best baseball. Uh, and I think in, in many respects that bodes well for Florida either because like you're saying, Peter, that uh, there's, better baseball to come, like how long can you expect Florida not to play its best baseball? This is one of the best teams in the country and has been all season. Uh, but it's also just like, well, okay, like this is a team that knows how to win, knows how to grind things out, even when things aren't at the their optimal level. Like this is a team that just is, you know, they're, they're finding a way. And like there's, there's just a lot to be said for that. I, you know, you could also look at it if you're LSU and say, well, like, okay, like, if they're not going to play any better, like while TCU, Oral Roberts and Virginia weren't able to take advantage, maybe we will be. And, uh, you know, so I think that makes it interesting here going into uh, into that championship series. But the 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 way that Florida 
has pitched has been quite impressive. Their bullpen has been uh, has been pitching really well. Hurston Waldrop uh, was really good again here in Omaha as he has been throughout the NCAA tournament. And if I'm Florida, that's what I'm feeling best about right now. Uh, offensively, they have really struggled. Their batting average right now, which I don't have in front of me, but I can tell you uh, that it's as a as a team, Florida is hitting worse in Omaha than UCLA did in 2013 when it won the title. And UCLA hit like 213 or 211 as a team that year, and it was the lowest batting average in the College World Series by a team that that won the national title. Um, and there was a lot made of that. That was in the absolute deadest of the dead ball era uh, here in college baseball. And obviously Florida's making up for it because they're just getting big hits and they're hitting home runs and like their slugging percentage is great, but like there's way more to this than batting average. However, uh, like they're not getting runners on very often. And that is, uh, that is a little disconcerting, but they, again, to their credit, they just keep finding a way to win and they have the dudes in the lineup that can hit home runs. Like, top to bottom, basically, uh, pretty much everyone that they're going to run out to the plate uh, is uh, is a home run threat. And what we've seen so far is that Florida is very opportunistic in that and that their pitching staff uh, is good enough to make uh, one or two run home runs stand up. Yeah, and I think that you made a great point because there are always two sides to it. And if I'm LSU, it's like, okay, they're relying on the long ball in the stadium that I'd say you're least – wise to rely on the long ball in with Charles Schwab, like that kind of, I, I wouldn't say mentality, but winning games like that where you're living and dying with a home run with the home run ball at Charles Schwab stadium is a very dangerous line to toe. Um, and then also if I'm LSU, I'm thinking, okay, we have this tidal wave of momentum right now. And I think that I think with the off days, with Florida having two days of rest, I think it's a good thing and it also could be a bad thing. With LSU, they've only got the one off day. They can kind of stay in that keep rolling mentality where it's like they don't really have much time to like sit and be stagnant. Not saying that Florida is, but I think that there is a little bit of an upside to to kind of staying in your rhythm and, and keeping your momentum rolling for LSU. And I think that their lineup has showed more prowess than Florida to this point. Um, but also with the Gators, you're going to have your starting pitching lined up with Sprout and Waldrip, um, Jack Caglione if necessary. Your bullpen is going to be fresh and rested. Um, and then kind of the key is it's been all year for Waldrip and Sprout and Caglione for that matter, um, is consistency. You see them turn in excellent outings and then – they're following one. They'll come back a little bit sporadic, um, spray the ball a little bit. But I think that for Waldrip, he's finally found that consistency. Um, in his last 21 innings, he's allowed just two earned runs, and he's struck out 37 hitters, I think it is. Um, so it looks like he has really, really hit his stride, made himself a lot of money recently. Um, and I think that he's a guy that you're going to be really, really comfortable giving the ball to um, on the mound to either clinch a national championship or in game one. Um, I think it'll be for the national championship if, um, yeah, they're, they're not going to deviate. It'll be Sprout and then Waldrop. Yeah. So in a potential national championship clinching game or in a, um, or to bring your, or to bring the Gators even, I think that 
he's a guy that you can have a lot of confidence giving the ball to. And then with Sprout, the key all year has been throwing strikes. I mean, he doesn't really get barreled up all that often. It's just sprayed command has kind of been his bugaboo and, and done him in. He's got as loud a stuff as anyone um, in in the country and for, for my money's worth with his exploding fastball and then the plus split change and, and his slider. So um, I, I there are so many different ways, like each team, there are so many pros and cons for, for each club right now coming into this championship series. So I'm, it's just going to be fascinating to watch it unfold. And I know that we'll probably talk about it more in a little bit. Um, just the one thing I'm, I'm really, I guess, interested, concerned, intrigued by a whole litany of adjectives is LSU's pitching. Um, because again, you get to this point, which is outstanding. Um, but you are, I mean, Paul Skeens is such a nut job in the best way possible. So I don't want to say like Florida is not going to see him for an, like an inning. If that, like, if that scenario arises, if, which would if, if they play on Monday, game. I feel like he, you might, you, you, I'm not saying he starts the game, but I, I think there's a very realistic chance he pitches. In some <laughs> right. Like if it goes to three, like then Florida might see Skeens to close it out. But again, for the most part, um, they're not going to see Skeens. Thatcher Hurt has also been used a lot recently. It's again, you're going to need, uh, you're probably going to need Ty Floyd to step up on, on short rest. And then again, just as Nate Ackenhausen and Griffin Herring have done same with Thatcher Hurd, uh, someone to step up. And is that guy Christian little that we're talking? It's just, they're, they're going to need to, to have guys continue to step up and rise to the occasion. So you, you talked about the off days and, or the, the, the fact that Florida gets this off day and, and how that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing for them. And, uh, you know, this is small sample size and every year is different and the format even has changed since like what the stat that I'm about to say began. But the last five times that, you know, so in Omaha, there are the two different brackets and, and if you're the last five times that only one bracket has gone to the if necessary game, uh, the team that had to play the if necessary game, not the team with the extra S, the team that had to play the if necessary game has gone on to win the national title. That includes Ole Miss last year uh, in this new format, uh, beating Oklahoma. But it most of the like that goes all the way back to 2012 was the last time that that didn't happen, that Arizona got the extra day of rest, South Carolina didn't, and Arizona won the national title all the way back in 2012. Every time since then, if there's been only one bracket that plays the if necessary game, the team that had to play the extra game wins the national title. So there was a lot of discourse yesterday as the game begins and, you know, that you see both teams pitching their aces and then it continues and you see like bullpens and getting taxed and all the rest of that, that like, this is great for Florida. And like, it's not bad for Florida, but there is also something to, I don't know, the momentum or staying in it or whatever. Like it's a small sample, but it's also not a sample. Like, I'm not just saying Ole Miss did this last year and, then if you go and you look, it's like the last like seven times it happened, like the team with the extra rest won. Like, uh, I don't know what it is because it's not necessarily even always momentum because a year ago, uh, it wasn't like Ole Miss came out of the loser's bracket. They um, they, they did it, uh, you know, they lost, they went 2-0 and then lost a game and then had to play on Thursday. So 
I, I don't know what it is. I don't really know what to make of it other than like this time of year, things are not as simple as like, oh, well, they have their rest or they have their pitching lined up. Like there's just so much that goes into winning these games that these easy narratives uh, and I'm not like hating on anyone that, that's grasping at them. Like I, I certainly do that as well. But these easy narratives just don't play the same way in Omaha as as you might expect them to. Yeah, and for lack of better phrasing, it it's gonna get weird. Um, you're gonna see guys in thrust into scenarios that you're not used to seeing them. Um, really, on the pitching side, it's just gonna kind of be you'll have your starters for each game, and then from there on, it's kind of wherever the game is headed is going to dictate who you use in any given scenario. So um, I I know that with the Gators, I I think that everyone for the most part is on close, if not completely full rest, which I think plays in their favor. And then with LSU again, um, it's just, you're going to have to find that next guy who you feel confident in giving you a really strong, three, four, maybe five innings. I think Blake Money is someone that stands out to me as uh, a guy that will be relied upon for that, Um, potentially Christian Little as well. And then even Javin Coleman, who started um, in that first game against Wake Forest and was not sharp, but uh, the Tigers did come back and win to force that game three. So he only threw 40 pitches. I think that you can kind of circle back on him and then, and talking about short rest, uh, Ty Floyd could be another guy that. So my, my guess is Ty Floyd starts game one and they'll ride whatever they can out of him. You're going to see a lot of Riley Cooper. Uh, like I guarantee that. I assume they'll go back to Ackenhausen for game two. Uh, but by game two, Thatcher Hurd should be uh, should be fully ready to go as well. I would say, you know, like the thing is the circle gets smaller in Omaha. It doesn't get bigger. And like, so to an extent, I guess it has gotten bigger for LSU, but you know, it's going to be the guys that you've seen to this point by and large. Um, because when, the, with the title on the line, like you want your dudes out there. Now I haven't said that, like weird things happen 2017 when these two teams played, like they both had to go through the if necessary game and they both played, uh, you know, so they both played that extra game and, uh, they had to, in game two, both start dudes that they were not expecting to start. That was the Tyler Dyson game for Florida. And that was, oh man, I don't even remember who started for LSU, but it was it was not a pitcher they had intended to use in that kind of situation. Uh, so weird things do happen and somebody is going to have to step up. But I also think that like it's the guys that you we're, we're, we're dancing with the guys who brought us here at this point, you know, for for both of these teams and. Uh, you know, Riley Cooper has already pitched like, three times in Omaha. I think uh, he's going to pitch a couple more times, I would guess. And for Florida, like Brandon Neely has closed every one of these games and you're going to see a lot of Brandon Neely again over the next couple days. Like this is uh tiredness doesn't really exist in Omaha, I guess is the, the best way to put it. Like the, this is what everyone has played here, played all season to do. And these pitchers are are going to uh, going to go out there and lay it lay it all on the line if they can. Yeah, no, and I think that you summed it up perfectly. That like the tired tiredness does not exist. It's all adrenaline. Um, there is not going to be a single arm that doesn't want the baseball. And um, I think that as you said, heavy doses of Riley Cooper can be expected, and he's been great out here. 
Nate Ackenhausen again was excellent in his in his start, season long seven innings pitched. Um, they've again, as you said, you dance with the guys that got you here. So um, I know that the Tigers are going to be have the utmost confidence in their dudes, and and same with Florida. All right, well, let's get a quick break in here. We're going to come back and uh, we're going to make some picks uh, for this uh, this championship series, and uh, you know we're going to also talk a little bit about some of these teams that have been eliminated because uh, I don't want to I don't want to gloss over what Wake Forest season was, what Oral Roberts did to get here, and you know Tennessee and Stanford and uh, you know Virginia. I think I mentioned them all now. Like those teams uh, have, were, were really impressive here. And, and uh, so I want to touch on them as well. But, but first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Peter. So we've uh, we've done a, we've dived into the, the finals break down a little bit here in terms of the pitching. We mentioned that uh, Florida has not had its best offensive performance out here. Uh, LSU, I don't know. What do you, what do you, where do you think their lineup is right now? Like we just saw Wake Forest shut them down for 10 innings, but you know, Wake Forest is a really good pitching staff. Where where do you feel like LSU is offensively as, as we go into the finals? So it's tough because, as you mentioned, Wake Forest, I think, for my money's worth, is the has the best pitching staff out here. Um, even though they're eliminated, I think that um, it, it's tough to argue with that. And so in LSU's five games, they've seen Wake three times and Tennessee twice. So it's two really good, um, obviously really good teams. And then they've also seen um, really good pitchers, as they saw Andrew Lindsay with Tennessee in their first game with the Vols. And then in the second game with the Vols, they had Drew Beam. Um, so it's not like, it's not like LSU has had like a bunch of guys to, to be able to jump on and potentially take advantage of. And I thought that while they've been a little bit quieter than I had thought, they, they have gotten pro, um, production from guys like Cade Belozo with the three, with the huge three-run home run against Wake Forest, um, and then obviously Tommy White last night, and Dylan Cruz has been Dylan Cruz. So um, I think a little bit quieter than I had expected, but I also came in with 
my expectations a little bit in check, both given the the format of their bracket and then also just how the ball plays in Charles Schwab Stadium, how impossible it is to to get it out and get it in the gaps in the in these vast outfields. So I'd say a little bit underwhelmed, but also understanding of who they've had to face. There was some talk about Tommy White struggling in Omaha. Um, and like he wasn't he hasn't lit the world on fire out here, but I, I think that that's that is too much. Like I would not go that far, you know, prior to the home run. He and Dylan Cruz, uh, who Dylan Cruz had the single to get the rally start rally <laughs> to, get, to get the 11th inning started yesterday. Uh, neither one of them has, again, expectations on those two are so high that, you know, if they make outs, it's people think it's uh, all of a sudden they're struggling. But, you know, Trey Morgan has actually been LSU's best player out here. Like, I would guess that if we voted right now LSU most outstanding player, that it would be Paul Skeens, and that's probably deserving. But, like, Trey Morgan has been LSU's best position player uh, to this point in, in the World Series. If they can, if he can stay hot and, you know, Cruz and Morgan, not Cruz and Morgan, Cruz and White keep getting on base ahead of him, like, that, that starts to be uh, a little more exciting from uh, from an LSU standpoint. But I, both of these lineups are, they're not pitchable. Like, that that's the wrong word for it. But there are not, it's not one through nine, like, no breaks in the lineup right now. Like, there are some guys in there that are pressing or not pressing, whatever. But, like, the, the, it's not, in this ballpark at least, it's not the, neither of these are just like, oh, wow, you, you cannot pitch to these lineups. Now, we, we say, like, oh, in this ballpark, and like, it's playing pitcher friendly and everything. But if the wind flips, things change. And I honestly think at this point that if the wind were to flip, and it were to play, the wind were to start blowing out or at least stop blowing in at like the rate at which it has been. Uh, that's probably advantage LSU because it will neutralize some of Florida's advantage on the mound. I know that like I, I try not to look at early forecasts, especially for wind, but uh, I have heard that Sunday afternoon is uh, projected to be a little bit different. And that w- I, I do think that'd be bad news for Florida. Like you have the advantage on the mound, especially on Sunday. Uh, I would want it to be as good as it could be for me uh, in terms of a pitching environment, but we'll uh, we'll have to see what the uh, what the weather has in store for us. Defensively, I feel like both of these teams are, are playing really well. I mean, they've both made some outstanding plays. Josh Rivera has looked fantastic. You know, I, I said Trey Morgan was uh, LSU's best position player here. I mean, for me, Josh Rivera has been Florida's best position player here, and. Uh, the way the way that he's playing shortstop is uh, it, it has really been a, a, a huge plus for the Gators. Yeah, and it, it, the best way to sum it up, it, it's just been pro like. I mean, he he's very comfortable moving to either side. He's made a lot of big time plays in big time situations look very very easy and low maintenance. Um, he he certainly looks the part of someone who's going to be selected on day one of the draft. How high it is, I guess we'll find out soon enough. But and then, as far as swinging the bat goes, he's, I think, probably been their best bat too. Two home runs. He's four for twelve. Um, only struck out twice. Um, he's, I mean, he's kind of been the straw that that stirs the drink for the Gators out here. And 
um, for LSU, I, without a doubt, it, I think that goes to Trey Morgan. Um, after last night, it's going to be tough to argue against Tommy White for a number of reasons. Um, and then Dylan Cruz has, has done his Dylan Cruz thing with a few multi-hit games, his backside home run. Um, but Trey Morgan, I think, might be getting a little bit overlooked. Defensively, he's been I really just out of this world, whether it be really good picks, great stretches. Last night's play on the safety squeeze where he actually started on the dirt because he had to hold the runner on first because it was a first and third scenario. He had to hold the runner on first. Merrick Houston doesn't square around until the, you know, he, he's, he's not showing. Um or he is showing, but then Trey Morgan has to then crash, make a great flip to Alex Malazzo, and and they nab Justin Johnson at the plate. So um, Morgan has been excellent, and then with the wind, it's such an interesting dynamic because, again, you talk about how anti-hitter this park is, but every single day that we've been there, the flags are blowing straight at us in, in – behind home plate where where we're sitting where we're seated in the press box so if that were to flip i think that it heavily favors an lsu team who they really get the ball in the air often they have a ton of guys with firepower obviously florida does too but i think that with how this is gone lsu would would have a lot of home runs to their name if the win was flipped who knows if it will be and then as you mentioned all of each of these lineups are it's really really good but i think that you can feel more comfortable both um you know being in attack mode on the mound and kind of especially when the wind is blowing in and not being scared of of being beat by a home run and especially with the bottom third of the order i think for for lsu in particular i know that the top third has been dynamite with cruz white morgan even brayden jobert has had a good um has had a couple of good games but I think that you can feel rather comfortable going after those six through nine hitters right now. Um, and obviously that could change on a dime as, as they're immensely talented. But um, I think if you're Florida, you can feel pretty good about attacking those guys in the lineup. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's been just been interesting to watch all of that uh, evolve here in Omaha. This is also a case where both, you know, I, I talked a lot about experience um, throughout the, the course of the season, when it, especially in regards to Wake Forest and like, would it eventually cost them? And I don't know that it did. Like you can, you, you can second guess uh, various moves that, that were made throughout the tournament for Wake and whatever. I mean, you can do that to any of these teams. I was doing it in real time last night, wondering why Wake wasn't going to its closer. Then as soon as Wake does go to its closer, Tommy White calls game. So, you know, like whatever, uh, things happen um, and and decisions are made and, and they work or they don't work. I, and, you know, I, I don't know if the experience cost Wake in the end. I think it was probably more just they ran up against a really good team and maybe Wake didn't know what to do with the pressure that it was experiencing for the first time in the same way that Tennessee and Arkansas and UCLA were all failed by that in the last few years and go on back as far as far as 20 plus years for all the, the number one seeds that have lost. But having said all of that, both of these coaches uh, have Kevin O'Sullivan and Jay Johnson have both coached in college world series finals before Sully has a national title. Uh, Jay Johnson does not, but uh, they both have that CWS finals experience. They know what's going to be happening this weekend. They, they know the 
you know, coaching with these stakes. I mean, it is I, like, I, I think these are two of the better staffs in terms of, you know, pitch calling and, and managing their players and everything. So I, I from that chess match perspective, uh, I'm going to call this one a push. Uh, but I do think it's it's notable that both of these guys, uh, you know, have been on this stage before. Yeah, and, and similar to describing Josh Rivera's play as shortstop, each of these staffs, I mean, it's it's pro-like. It's as good as you're going to get in college baseball, um, both at the head coaching level and then also below them with with um, with their assistants. And then you talk about the pitch calling and the moves that they make in-game and, and kind of managing on the fly. Um, it's it's going to be a real chess match for a few days that it's – it's going to be a fun game to watch beyond the game. Yes, absolutely. So having broken this down from just about every, at least all of the, the ways that I can think of, you know, pitching, defense, offense, and uh, what, what's going on in the dugout, Peter, I, I think it's time for us to make picks. So who do you got? Oh, man. See, I thought about it falling asleep last night. I thought about it on my walk back to the lovely courtyard in which I'm staying. I'm going to say LSU in three games. Wow. Okay. I, I thought you were going to go the other way. I am going to continue to ride with LSU. Uh, I've done it since the preseason. Uh, not jumping off now. I will also say in three games because I think that if LSU is to win this, it really needs to win it in three. Um, I think... You know, game one is winnable. Uh, LSU beat Brandon Sprout a year ago. These teams didn't play this year, but uh, they beat Sprout a year ago. Sprout's a better pitcher now and everything, but they they know what they're looking at in terms of Sprout, uh, and they've had success against him before. Uh, he has been good in the NCAA tournament, but, you know, like he's, he's given consistent quality starts. I think this last one was he didn't quite go six, but that's been pretty consistently what he's doing. Uh, but he's also not throwing six scoreless. So I think they've got a, a reasonable shot to win game one. Hurston Waltrip is a real problem in game two. And, and uh, LSU has faced him a year ago when he was at Southern Miss, I believe. And, and uh, you know, I, I feel good about Florida with, with Waltrip on the mound. And then in game three, if it gets there, anything can happen. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to go with LSU on this one. Yeah, I like it, and you make a great point because LSU for, and again, Sprout's a better pitcher than he was a year ago, but more or less they know what they're going to see with him. And then with Waldrip on Saturday, I don't want to call game one a must win because anything really can happen, but I think that they would really, really, for a number of reasons, like to have game one under the belt. So I have faith they're going to do that. Um, Sunday I do think that Florida's going to win, and then on Monday – I think LSU wins six to five to three, and Paul Skeens gets the last three outs. Now it's uh, very interesting that I'm just going to gloss over the Paul Skeens thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like that's clearly the most important thing that you said, but I'm uh, we're moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm currently looking. Yes, last year they did face Waldrop, and um, they won the game that Waldrop started in regionals. But Waldrop uh, goes six and two thirds, struck out eleven held them to two runs. So, you know, both teams are better, but both LSU is better than they were a year ago and Waldrop's better than he was a year ago, but they, they have interestingly seen both of, uh, both of those two pitchers before. Um, 
again, they did not play this year, but but LSU still has faced both of Florida's uh, top two starters. So we both picked LSU. We are probably going to be in the minority, Peter. Like I, I haven't seen like official betting lines, but I'm sure that Florida's the favorite uh, in those markets. I have um, been texting SEC coaches this morning uh, for a piece that you'll find on BaseballAmerica.com, probably by the time this podcast is posted. And uh, so far, I have one, two, three, four, five, six. This is great audio. Yeah, I think six coaches have responded to me so far. Um, We're talking head coaches. It's five to one Florida in terms of predictions. So, yeah, like I... We're, we're going to be in the minority here. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking at the way Florida has set up their, has their pitching rotation set up. Um, I know that there's just a, you know, an incredible amount of talent on the, on the Florida roster. So I, you know, I, they, they deserve to be favorites, I think. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I will, we'll see, but I, you and I, I, I do anticipate being, uh, in the minority here. Yeah, I think so too. But, uh, Similar to you, LSU was also my preseason national champion, and I'm not going to – you know what? I'm going to ride with them for a couple more games. Yeah, at this point, hopping out Florida is not going to get you anything. So <laughs> exactly. if, if everyone else is going to say Florida, like we, you might as well like say LSU and, and uh, you know hope hope that you can point to what, what we said in January and February as uh, uh, you know, be, being a very insightful prediction when at the time we were just picking the best team. <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh all right so that's the that's the finals matchup let's uh let's circle back to some of these teams that are no longer playing wake forest uh what an incredible year for the deeks they fall one win shy of playing for the national title uh but you know 54 wins on the year win the acc get back to omaha for the first time since 1955 like have this like all-time pitching staff um you know josh hartle and Rhett Louder were trading the single season strikeout record back and forth there for a minute. Um, Louder ends up with it. Uh, sorry to Mike Buddy, Army athletic director, who's actually in Omaha because he's a part of the, the, the selection committee. So he's doing his committee duties here. But he's a Wake Forest alum who up until very recently was their, uh, was their strikeout holder. But um, the, uh, the, the, the season the Deeks had, I mean, you can't say enough about it at this point, I would say. Yeah, and I, I think that outside of 1955, I think there's an argument to be made that this was the best season in school history. They won the most overall games with 54. The talent, as you alluded to, on both sides of the baseball was exceptional with multiple 2023 and 2024 first-round picks. Um, obviously, Wilkin and Louder for this year, and then looking towards next year, Nick Kurtz, um, and then potentially even Michael Massey on day one. So. Really, Don't forget really, Hartle. Oh my gosh, yeah, and Josh Hartle. So um, it, it obviously ended short of its eventual goal um, for Wake with its heartbreaking loss last night, but they've got a strong core to build around, assuming everyone's back. Um, it's going to be a very offensive club, I think, again, and um, I don't think it'll be as slam dunk a pick as it was before this season to say that they're going to make it back to Omaha. But at this point now, you're talking about a coaching staff and a core group of guys that know what it takes to get to that point, which I think will 
will be very valuable going forward, um, not only next year, but so long as Coach Walter is in Winston-Salem. So I think they're, again, set up for a, a period of some sustained success and um, just an unbelievable season for the ages for, for the Deeks. Yeah, as long as they hold this together, and you know, there's no reason to believe that they won't, I would say, but just in today's environment, obviously, things could change quickly. Uh, but as long as they hold this together, I mean, it, it looks pretty good for next year as well. Um, you know, you've got a legit one and Hartle, and um, you know, you're losing you're losing Wilkin, but you still have Kurtz. And you know, if there's one thing Wake Forest has done really well uh, under uh, you know, historically, like the pitching has been great in recent years, but like, if you go further back, even like Wake Forest has done a, a really good job at finding hitters. And uh, you think about what Will Craig did several years ago, and you know, they, they, they often have lineup anchors like that. And that, that, that's what Nick Kurtz is. And they'll be able to build around that guy and you can build around Hartle on, on the mound, you know, Michael Massey probably moves into the rotation, I would guess. And, that's a strong one-two punch. And coming into this year, one of my biggest concerns about Wake Forest was just that, like, they'd had some uh, some moments, but they'd never been able to put everything together really. And now they have, so I don't have to I don't have to worry about that. They've been here, uh, they've won an ACC title. I, I don't have to sit here and say like, do they do they know what it takes to to do, do they have what it takes to. Uh, you know, to put it all together for sustain that success over the entire course of the season. Like they've, they've done it. They know what it looks like. They've got players that know what it looks like. Uh, so I, I, I anticipate Wake Forest being, uh, being pretty good again next year. And we'll see if, if that's uh, enough to get here again, but uh, they've got, they've got some really nice pieces to build around as they, as they try and make a, a return to Omaha. I, I do not think here's a hot take. I don't think it'll be 70 years until they make it back here again. Uh, <laughs> I agree. I don't, I don't think I don't think we're seeing one of those droughts uh, out of Wake Forest again. So uh, whether it's next year or sometime in the future, I think we'll uh, we'll see them back here. Uh, TCU uh, makes a bracket final. They won the Big 12 title, uh, tournament title. It was a weird season, I would say, for TCU up and down the first couple months, but they found themselves in May and went on a run. And, you know, this was a team that coming into the year, we ranked in the top 15, like we thought they were going to be good. Took them a little while to get there, but I mean, the freshmen that were playing here in Omaha for TCU, Anthony Silva, shortstop, Cole Klecker, making a couple starts at, at the front of their rotation, uh, you know, Bowen, like they, they had some really nice underclassmen and, uh, you know, to have them blossom the way they did at the end of the season, I, I think that's huge for the Horned Frogs. Yeah, and I think that obviously for any of the eight teams in Omaha, I think once they, other than the one that ends up on top, whether that's LSU or Florida, I think that they're all going to leave with a little bit of a sour taste in their mouth and and with that chip on its shoulder. But once they can marinate on it, I think that obviously each season was wildly successful just to get here. Um, and especially for TCU, who I think is ahead of schedule in terms of like, I guess the success that they're going to have, they came into the, they came into the tournament as I'd say arguably the hottest team in the country. They just ripped off four straight to win the big 12. Um, and then they swept through Fayetteville before sweeping Indiana state. Um, and then they were, you know, they were right on the cusp of, um, of a championship series. If they had, uh, 
if they had somehow beaten Florida on Wednesday, they would have been playing for a spot in the in the championship series, but didn't happen. Uh, they do have an outstanding young core that they're going to be able to build around. Um, they are going to lose some talent with, you know, most notably Braden Taylor, and then Trey Richardson is also going to be gone, and then potentially Cole Fontenelle. But offensively, you're going to have um, Carson Bowen back, who hit 350 with 15 doubles and six home runs. Is a great catcher. Calls a great game, really knows how to handle a pitching staff. Uh, you're going to have Anthony Silva, who was a bona fide stud over at shortstop, made a one of the defensive – actually, again, one of the defensive plays of the tournament. It was in the – I think the third or the fourth inning of, of the very first game here. Yeah, he went, it was right out of the shoot. I think it might have even been the second inning. It was <laughs> – it was, yeah, it was, we had just started playing, and it was like, oh, hello. Yeah, it was right away. He went up the middle, made a slide, and then one fell swoop, one fell motion. Popped up, fired a strike over to first base, and everyone was like, "Whoa, holy cow! This kid is a, this kid is legit." And then, I think on the pitching side of things, they have an a, a even better core to build around. If, if you can even comprehend that, with Cole Klecker leading the way in the rotation, who was excellent all year, pitchability guy, um, is clearly unfazed by the bright lights of Omaha, and I think getting this experience, making a couple starts here and a couple of good starts at that um, is going to be extremely valuable for him going forward. Um, and then guys like Cohen Fieser and Ben Abelt, who I think has a chance to be one of the most dominant um, relievers in all of college baseball next year. Um, and then Luis Rodriguez, again, a freshman who uh, performed well for the Horn Frogs, but hadn't thrown since May 18th, I think due to an injury, but Again, I think that they're, uh, I think, ahead of schedule with what they're doing. And I think that, um, again, TCU, similar to Wake, I think, I mean, TCU is going to have Omaha buzz just like Wake will going into next year. But I think the Horned Frogs have a real chance to to make another run and a potentially deeper run at it next year. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that Wake, or uh, sorry, TCU probably goes into next year as the Big 12 favorite. I'm not as far along in my 2024 prep as I usually would be this time of year. Um, and I know Texas should be pretty good as well uh, in its final Big 12 season. But I, to, with the, all those underclassmen coming back for TC, you've got to got to feel really good about their ability to um, compete at the top of the conference once again. Uh, quick update: I have a seventh SEC coach weighing in. Five to two. Uh, it's uh, no, it is six to one. <laughs> oh man! Jeez. Stop uh, the count. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, uh, like I, there there are fourteen SEC teams. Two of them are are, are playing. I didn't text those two guys, so uh, we have we have reached a uh, uh, like the, the Florida is going to be the uh, the, the going to win this vote. Oral Roberts, uh, the Golden Eagles have. I mean, so you said that. Outside of 55, this is the best season in Wake Forest history. Like, absolutely. This was the best season in Oral Roberts history. They, they had made it here in 78. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to say that everyone there would probably say that this year was, was even better than that. They win 50-plus games. They had a 21-game uh, winning streak. They also had a dude who had a 47-game hitting streak. Uh, but it was, uh, they think, of 23-1 and in Summit League play. Uh, they're the third number four seed in the super regional history to uh, super regional era to uh, to advance this far. And then they played well while they were here. You know, like 
they did not get blown out. Stony Brook got blown out a couple times when they got here as a four seed. Oral Roberts not only won a game, but they, they did win a game, but the, the, the losses were close losses when they took them. Uh, they really acquitted themselves well on uh, on this stage. Yeah, they more than showed that, you know, again, they're going to be talked about as a, again, I'm using air quotes, as a Cinderella team, just given the fact that they were a four seed. But make no mistake about it, this was a team that absolutely rolled, as you said, through the Summit League, 23-1 and um, conference record, back-to-back conference champs. Um, and then in that Stillwater Regional, like, I mean, they – obviously they're the best team coming out of it because they won it and swept through it, but they looked, you know, on from a sheer talent perspective too, like the best team there. And, and the same thing in Eugene against Oregon and coming into Omaha, they won the opening game against TCU played a potential national champion. They at, at the very least a finalist. Um, they played them to a one run game. And then at the end, I think they just ran out of gas against TCU, but um, it's just a, a really gritty group of veteran older guys. They love playing for each other. They love playing for their school. Um, outside of Kay Denton and I guess Jonah Cox, maybe even throw Jacob Widener in there. It's not a super prospecty bunch. Denton, I think, is a top five to eight round pick, but uh, stopper of the year, Summit League pitcher of the year. Um, he's He was lethal and, and he showed off. Uh, what makes him so great in Omaha too. Uh, he had a couple of strong outings. His first outing against TCU wasn't overly sharp. It was some uncharacteristic command issues, but in the Golden Eagles loss, the season ending loss to TCU fired four shutout innings with six strikeouts. So a really nice note for Denton to go out on, um, showed off his signature sinker slider combo. Um, that's just devastating for opposing hitters. And then Jonah Cox, uh, one of the best hitters in the country, maybe the best hitter in the country that doesn't get talked about, I think is enough, enough as he should. Um, I think his hitting streak ended up being 48 games, 47, 47 games, regardless, super impressive recorded a hit, um, in 64 or 63 of his 65 games played, um, showed out here in Omaha with, um, with a three hit game against TCU. Again, a nice note for Cox to go out on. But for the Golden Eagles, best best year in school history. I know that they're going to lose a lot, um, you know, to graduation in the draft. But given what they're building there, um, I don't know. You can't really project a team like this to make it back to Omaha. But I can almost for certain say that if they win the Summit League again and get into the tournament, um, you are going to be on absolute high alert if – the Golden Eagles, if the Golden Eagles are in your regional. Yeah, I thought um, uh, Jake McMurray said it pretty well in their um, final press conference here that like people in the region knew who Oral Roberts was. And I think people in the know in college baseball, like if you listen to this podcast, you probably were aware of Oral Roberts and like what they historically have been. But uh, they took that to a new audience uh, with what they were able to do here. Uh, and, and everyone, I, I think, has a, has a little better appreciation of what Oral Roberts can do on the, on the diamond and what they have been um, for a couple decades now. Uh, there, was a, there was a discourse, as there often is, about whether this was a true Cinderella story or not. And like, look, here's the thing. I don't care whether it was or wasn't. They were underdogs. 
they played really well throughout the tournament. Like whether they should have been a four or a three, whatever, but like, no matter how you slice it, they shouldn't have been here. Uh, like that's not, that's not what anybody thought coming into this thing um, that they were going to make it through that gauntlet. And even if you say like, Oh, well they had the talent to like, yeah, okay. They did clearly they did. But like when you put up like that, they had to beat uh, Oklahoma state, Dallas Baptist, Washington and Oregon to get here and that all of those games would have been played away from home. I mean, like that's uh, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Like no team really is supposed to be able to do that. If that's the the path that they, they have to take to get here. No team had a harder path than Oral Roberts to this point. And they, uh, again, they, they played really, really well over the last month, but actually over the entire course of the season. Yeah, and, and not only that, they went they went five and one in those six games. Not like they could have afforded to really lose that many more, but like they cruised through that Stillwater regional, um, as you mentioned, against three, I think, really good teams. So uh the furthest thing from a fluke. I have an eighth text and uh Oh no. This one doesn't actually have an answer. It has a sarcastic answer, but I believe it's a vote for uh I believe it's a vote for LSU. Hey, there we go. It's not, right. it's not a clear answer, uh, but I believe that's an LSU vote. So we'll, we'll, take, <laughs> we'll take it as six to two. I'll take it. <laughs> so oh, who else do we got here? We got Virginia and we got uh, 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 Stanford and Tennessee left. You know, we've talked an awful lot about what uh, what Stanford did this year, what Quinn Matthews did to, to get Stanford here. Uh, you know, and there's going to be a, there is something of a conversation about like, okay, they're really good at getting here. Like now, when are they going to have success in Omaha? But like, to me, like that kind of undervalues what it takes to get here. Uh, it's kind of like a separate conversation about like, when is Stanford going to win in Omaha again? Uh, I don't want to like just gloss over the fact that they have turned this into an annual trip, that they've been here three straight times, that they're the class of the Pac-12 and, um, you know, they've run into some difficult matchups in Omaha and they haven't, they have not come away with wins, but uh, you know, I, I, they look really good. If you start looking ahead to next year, they still look really good. Like I still would pick them to win the pack probably. And they'll have to find some new answers. Quinn Matthews is gone um, in all likelihood. This, I mean, I would have said the same thing a year ago, but Quinn Matthews is probably gone. And, you know, Tommy Troy is gone out of the lineup, but like they'll have Malcolm Moore back and like they, they have really good players there and they know what they're doing as a program. Yeah. And I, I think you made a great point with, because of Stanford's lack of success in Omaha, people are going to undervalue what they've done. But I think that what's lost is how hard it is just to get to this point, not only just on any single season, but the fact that they've done it three times in a row and basically turned this into like how an eighth grade class goes to Washington, DC, they go to Omaha. It's like their annual end of school trip. Um, and they got a really, really tough draw this year with bracket two with they faced wake in Tennessee. Um, and they also had LSU in there and they honestly, they probably should have won both games. Um, they went up against wake. They went up two to one, held that lead until the bottom of the eighth. Um, and then against Tennessee, I think that's a game that they really should have won. They went up four nothing and then things kind of unraveled in the fifth. So, I mean, they were a lot closer than people will realize to being in a really good spot to potentially play for a national championship. And then 
looking at next year, they do. I mean, they lose a lot offensively. Tommy Troy is going to be gone. Alberto Rios is going to be gone. Eddie Park is gone. Owen Cobb is gone. Carter Graham is gone. Drew Bowser is gone. So it's like you're going to really have to build around Braden Montgomery and Malcolm Moore, who I think are, I mean, those are two studs to build around. Like they're losing a lot, but from a personnel standpoint, those are two of the best. More sophomore will be one of the best sophomores, and then Montgomery will be um, one of the best juniors in the country. So you could have worse guys to build around. Um, Timo Becerra is another returner who I know he only got around 60 at bats, but I think in what he showed both at shortstop and then at the plate, he's someone that is ready to to be an everyday contributor. And then on the mound, you lose the workhorse that is Quinn Matthews and you lose Joey Dixon. But other than that, I think you have some key rotation pieces to build around. Some younger arms showed some flashes, namely Nick Dugan. I know that the back of the baseball card, again, is not going to look great, but towards the end of the year, he really came on. Um, and I, I think that with Coach Esker, you talk about finding a way, that's all that Stanford does in terms of getting to Omaha, winning the Pac-12, and, 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 and finding ways to win in the postseason. So um, until they prove otherwise, it's going to be hard to – Hard to pick against the Cardinal in, in getting back to the College World Series. Absolutely. Uh, you know, w- when you lay it out like that, it, it starts to look pretty exciting, you know, again. Um, so we will uh, we'll probably be seeing Stanford here on this stage sooner than later, uh, possibly as soon as uh, as soon as next year. Um, Virginia, the Who's were, I think they were kind of a, a little bit of a popular choice for for people that were trying to find a reason not to pick Florida uh, to to come out of out of the that bracket. Uh, obviously, I went with TCU, but like I, the, there was an argument for for Virginia belief that maybe they were their offense would play really well in this ballpark, and uh, instead UVA goes goes to and out. Um, you know, they were in position to win against Florida in game one, and I don't want to say that there was a hangover into game two, but there might have been. Jake Geloff, Kyle Teal, their fantastic careers are going to be over. Teal's going to be a top 10 pick. Geloff will go somewhere in the top 50. And uh, those are two of the best hitters in UVA history. The Hoos are going to have to retool on the mound again. Uh, But having watched them do it a year ago and everyone looking around and saying, so who's actually going to pitch for Virginia? And then their pitching staff ranking like fourth in the country in ERA. Like, I'm going to trust that they'll figure that out that bit of it out. Like, I don't know if, if this is a missed opportunity for UVA, if that's too strong or what, but like, I do think that UVA will, uh, uh, will, will look back fondly at this season uh, because of what Teal and Geloff uh, meant to the program particularly, but also because of the way that they, uh, that their pitching staff was able to, to come together after a lot of uncertainty uh, in the fall and, and coming into the season. Yeah, and and again, I I agree with you, and I think that they will look back on this season very fondly. It was uh, uh, an extremely successful season. It culminated in a trip to the College World Series. You win 50 games for the first time since 2014, I believe. Um, and then even though they're going to lose two, two of the best hitters in college baseball and in Kyle Teal and Jake Geloff, and then also probably Ethan O'Donnell, I'm pretty bullish on – UVA going into next year offensively it's gonna like you still have Griffo Farrell back Ethan Anderson Anthony Stefan um, Casey Saki Luke Hansen those are that's a really good 
core group of five guys that you can already count on. And then inevitably there'll be a freshman that steps up and then a sophomore that makes a jump. So I think you're in a pretty good spot offensively. Teal and Geloff, their production is borderline irreplaceable with a combined 159 RBIs, but um, it'll be a little bit of a step back. But again, they have they have great personnel. And then pitching wise, I think that you know you're gonna you lose. I think probably your whole rotation with early to the draft, and then Edgington and Parker moving on, um, graduating, and then potentially being drafted and signed. Um, Jack O'Connor is a guy that I think is going to slide. He, you know, he started the season in a Sunday role. I, he could either stick there or he could pitch on Fridays or Saturdays. And, you know, you'll still be able to have Jay Woolfolk out of the bullpen to, to close games. And then I think that you can count on any of these freshman arms to potentially slide into a weekend role or a, or a far more prominent role, whether it be Evan Blanco, Bradley Hodges, um, or Colin McKay. I think that those are a trio of guys that you're going to be really excited about. Same with Kevin Jaxel. Um, I, I left him out initially, but um, any of that quartet, I think that you can feel really good about. And then in today's day and age with the transfer portal, um, UVA is a, I think a rather easy sell um, to, to guys in the portal, both given the success of the program and then also it's high academics. It sets you up very well for your, your career post baseball um so i i again think that the cavaliers similar to a lot of these teams that we've talked about are well positioned to um to return back here all right last one is the vols uh they are one of the more confusing teams to talk about i think because they were the number two team in the preseason top 25 tony vitello has been pretty consistent since those polls started getting released that he thought uh that was an overrank of tennessee coming into the year um, but they end the season, like spoiler alert, they're going to be like fifth in the, the top 25, uh, the, the final poll. They, they end the season in Omaha. The, the road here was not the road that I think anybody thought it was going to be. It ends up looking pretty good for the Vols. Um, I think in some ways that probably has to be a pretty satisfying season for their fans. Uh, that they were able to overcome some of those early season struggles and, and find a way forward. It wasn't a runaway success of a year. And ultimately, like, they go one in four over the course of the season against LSU. And I think that probably has to hurt because you know that if you just, like, get a different matchup in Omaha or if you find a way to win a couple games in Baton Rouge, like, maybe the – the, the season looks differently. Maybe you get a home regional and, and then, you know, who knows how everything plays out, but uh, for them to go on the road throughout the postseason, uh, you know, win at Clemson, win at Southern Miss, get to Omaha, um, have this incredible pitching staff again, like, uh, and, and make it to Omaha for the second time in three seasons and win a game in Omaha for the first time since 2001. Uh, I, I, I do feel like that's uh, that's real progress for the program. Yeah, it was a very roller coastery season um, for the Vols. It, I mean, we were sitting here after their midweek loss to to Tennessee Tech, like sort of half jokingly talking about them, like teetering on the bubble of, of regionals, and then they go on and sweep Vanderbilt. But um, after last season's premature exit to Notre Dame, I mean, they came into the season with a huge chip on their shoulder. 
Um, still have the target on their back is kind of the bad boys of college baseball. Um, it was a really difficult first half of the year, and then they 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 turned it on. And to their credit, they played the best baseball. They played their best baseball of the season at the perfect time, and I think that's a big testament to um, not only Coach Vitello and his outstanding staff around him, but also to the to the players that they have. And you mentioned it, but they get a. I think a difficult draw and going to Clemson. I think that also on the flip side, Clemson got a difficult draw with having um, Tennessee in their regional and, and Tennessee wins one of the, I, I think the best game um, prior to the college world series in that six to five, 14 inning thriller, they beat Clemson. Um, and then they take down Tanner Hall and Southern Miss in three games. And, you know, in Omaha, as you mentioned, it's one in, they were one and four on the year against LSU. They get a brutal draw with that bracket too. And, you know, they have a winner under their belt with Stanford, and then in the end, LSU comes out on top in a with kind of a sound 5 to nothing win. So um, difficult end of the year for the Vols, but I think that it's one, again, you're going to look back on and be happy about given – I think it's really hard to not be happy about a trip to the College World Series in general. Um, but I think given that all you went through during the year, um, the early, I think, suspension or holdout of Maui Ahuna, um uh, weathering the storm with all those losses, figuring out your pitching on the fly. Um, Chase Burns, I mean, just absolute dynamite out of the bullpen in the College World Series with that six shutout innings against Stanford and nine strikeouts. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that as, so long as Coach Vitello is at the helm at Tennessee, um, he's going to get the most out of his guys. And I think looking towards next year again, you've got great personnel to build around. I think offensively I'm I'm honed in on – Blake Burke, Christian Moore, and Dylan Dryling, and then on the mound, um, you're you're again looking at a rotation that's going to be anchored by. I think that they, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with Chase Burns. I think that they're going to try him again in the rotation. Um, so you're looking at a rotation that's going to be led by Chase Burns, Drew Beam, and probably AJ Russell, who in 30 innings this year had a .89 ERA with 47 Ks to seven walks. So, um. The Vols are going to be, you know, right back in it, right back in the thick of it next year. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at, uh, you know, that kind of pitching staff, and, and as long as Frank Anderson and Tony Vitello are uh, are leading that team, like they're going to have a premium pitching staff. So pretty exciting stuff uh, that they can run out there. Uh, and, you know, offensively, I, I think they'll be able to figure it out. You know, like they they are losing some, some guys, but I, I, I would feel pretty good about Tennessee moving forward as well. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of how it all, how it all comes together for them, uh, next year. Alrighty. So that's, uh, that's where we're at in the college world series. We're down to two teams by, you know, we'll see whether this thing ends Sunday or Monday, but certainly at least by Monday night, there will be a national champion and, uh, this incredible 2023 college baseball season will, uh, will have come to a close. Uh, we'll be back here uh, sometime next week. I have no idea when. Uh, it, uh, there's a lot in the air um, to uh, to recap how the finals go. So make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Stitcher, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Hit that subscribe button, and then whenever it is that we record next week, uh, you'll uh, it'll just go right there to your phone. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Peter is at Peter G. Flaherty. 
and uh, make sure you're checking everything out over at baseballamerica.com. There is a lot to read, both about the College World Series and uh, everything else baseball as we uh, as we roll into July here uh, pretty soon. Like everything's going to go real crazy. Uh, draft, pro side with the futures game and lead up to the trade deadline. So a great time to uh, to check everything out over at baseballamerica.com. For Peter, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next week.